Alright, this little book of Philemon, and uh, we'll begin at verse number 8 and read down to the end of the book. Paul says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is mine own vows, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, there's a few things that I want to do tonight in the study. One of the things that I want to do is use this as an opportunity to address an important issue in the world, in our history as a civilization, but also in the Word of God. And that's the topic of slavery, because it's dealt with here in a very interesting and I believe a very potent and a very forceful way. I also want, as we walk through these passages, to give you two different applications of them. One being the very plain and simple application of Paul's words to Philemon concerning Onesimus, what we can learn from those things. But also, I believe a serious student of the Bible can't read this little uh, memo, this, this letter, this personal note written to Philemon, this wealthy Christian at Colossae, and not see in it a picture of what Christ has done for us. And so we, we may not be as sort of cohesive tonight as maybe we have been uh, in the past few weeks, but I want to try to pick up on all three of those things as we walk through this passage. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to address the issue of slavery in the Bible, because one of the things that you'll commonly hear enemies of, of Christ and enemies of the Lord and enemies of the Word of God invoke is slavery in the Word of God. And the way they do this, there, there's a twofold error that they make. The first error they make is conflating two different types of slavery that are present in the Word of God. And a good way to see these two things compared and, and contrasted is when you look in the Old Testament at the slavery that is provided for and is regulated through the Word of God in the Old Testament law, compared to the type of slavery that was existing in the day in the Old Testament, and it's very prevalent, it's, it's, a, it's a world system during the day of the, the Romans that Paul is writing this letter. So the slavery that is spoken of in the Old Testament, that is provided for in the Old Testament law, is more akin to what we would describe as indentured servitude. The idea being this, that a person's labor is their own property. By the way, this hits at the very heart of the political push today for socialism. Great many of the candidates that are running for the primaries here over the next few months are advocates of socialism. And you'll hear a lot of the language and political system uh, clouded. They'll talk about Nordic socialism. They'll talk about South American socialism. They'll talk about Soviet socialism. Uh, and they'll try to claim that all these are different. You know, they'll try to claim that, well, what we're really after is the Nordic socialism. It's ironic because the very same people saying that 20 years ago were touting South American socialism and saying, hey, that's a good thing. They were apologists for, you know, Cesar Chavez and, and Fidel Castro. And they were saying, well, they're really doing it right. And there's even some of them running for office right now that praise Venezuela uh, under Cesar Chavez. And, and now uh, they're uh, obviously trying to distance themselves from any sort of uh, applause for Venezuela as people in Venezuela are eating stray dogs. And uh, the average Venezuelan has lost, I think, 20 pounds uh, over the past year merely due to deprivation. 
Uh, the country's literally collapsing because of their socialistic policies. What is at the very heart of socialism versus capitalism? It is this basic fundamental belief that a person owns their own labor, that no one has a right to your labor, but that your labor is a commodity that you can do whatsoever you wish to do with it. If you want to be charitable with it, you can. If you want to be stingy with it, you can. Uh, but that your time, your labor, your energy is your own. Uh, the socialists would claim that a person's uh, time and energy and labor is something that belongs to the common cause of society. The capitalist believes that a person has the, uh, the jurisdiction and authority over their own labor. Well, here's a question for a Christian. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches throughout the Old Testament that a person has jurisdiction over their own labor. Uh, you might say this, that there's a bigger principle found, which is that the Lord has ultimate jurisdiction. And that because the Lord has jurisdiction over a man's possessions and a man's labor and a man's time and his energy, no other person has the right and the jurisdiction to those things. And because God chooses to operate within the spectrum of a person's free will, that means that the decision to invest your labor and your energy is then relented to the individual. They can choose to do with their labor and their time what they wish. And so in the Old Testament, one of the ways a person could avail themselves of their resources was to sell themselves into indentured servitude. Uh, and you'll find the, the regulations and rules concerning this throughout the Old Testament law uh, that a Hebrew servant, in fact, could not remain, he could not sell himself into slavery for any longer than six years. And in the seventh year, that slave would go out for free. And the idea behind that being that that slave, that that person didn't belong even to themselves, they belonged to the Lord. And so they could not indefinitely sell themselves into slavery and indentured servitude. So that they had the choice, if they wanted to, for up to six years, to sell their labor as a way to mitigate and offset and pay back their debts. And there were a lot of regulations given concerning how strangers in the land... You'll hear that language a lot in the Old Testament. Very often, not always, but very often, a stranger in the land was a slave. Uh, they were an indentured servant. And then there were even Hebrews themselves could sell themselves into indentured servitude. Uh, so slavery in the Old Testament in the Bible is not anything akin to the kind of slavery we see in Egypt. For instance, when uh, Joseph is sold into slavery against his will and is carried into, into Egypt. And he remains a slave until he's granted his freedom by Pharaoh. And in Paul's day, the kind of slavery that Onesimus was uh, involved in and Philemon was involved in was not the kind of uh, slavery that is uh, allowed for in the Old Testament, but rather was uh, the kind of slavery we think of, of owning another person as property, as chattel, as your own possession. And uh, their labor no longer belonging to them, but belonging to you and you alone. So the Word of God, when you hear people say, well, the Bible endorses slavery, uh, they're only giving you part of the conversation. They're only addressing part of it. They're not being honest with the Word of God. They're not being honest with themselves, and they're not being honest with the topic. So then that leads us with a second question, which is we know what God thinks about a person owning their own labor, being able to do with it what they please. But what does God think about the institution of slavery as we think of it uh, during the days of Rome and during the days of ancient Egypt? And actually, it's been a reality all throughout human history. Well, the answer is given in Paul's interactions uh, here in this letter uh, to Philemon, also in the uh, letter to the church at Colossae and in the letter to the church at Ephesus, which was this, that for the believer, that the only way to address the social ill of forced slavery was through the grace of God and through the love of Calvary. Rather than allowing this issue to be uh, degraded to merely a political issue, Paul could have, if he wanted to, he could have organized a slave revolt, but he didn't do it. If he wanted to, he could have petitioned powerful politicians and friends, but he didn't. Instead, he recognizes that at the end of the day, this, like all social ills, is a spiritual issue. You think about every social problem we have in society today. Alcohol is a social problem. It's an evil. It's a scourge. It's a cancer upon society. The way to address that, and I'm for all of the dry legislation that is ever going to come down the pipe, because I think that's what's best as a citizen, is for us to uh, try to eradicate that social ill. 
But I'm not for one moment deluded into believing that we're going to legislate away that problem. We tried that back in the 1920s. We legislated it away, but it didn't go away because there was still a desire to partake in it. And so you had bootlegging and, and rum runners and things like that. I'll tell you the way to eradicate it. Win the drunkard to the Lord. God will take away his desire for the liquor. Same thing is true about drugs. The same thing is true, uh, by the way, one of the great hot topic uh, issues and hot button issues of our day is abortion. I'm against abortion in any circumstance, for any reason. I think it's murder. People say, well, what about the cases of rape and incest? Well, don't put the baby to death. Put the rapist to death. <laughs> I'm for that. But don't, but don't put the baby to death on account of that. That baby didn't do anything wrong. But I'll tell you this, and I'm for, I'm for all the, the, the social pressures they put. I'm for all the legislation that they set forth. By the way, the, the, and I am a conservative uh, in every way, shape, fashion, and form. I don't have a liberal bone in my body. But it was the Republicans, by the way, last week that led the way in voting down the heartbeat bill in the state of Tennessee. That ought to bring great shame. That ought to bring great shame. And they ought to hear about it from their constituency. Uh, I, listen, I'm for every pro-life piece of legislation that comes along. But you know the best way is to win the hearts and win the souls of the people that are looking for that as being a way of escape to the situation that they find themselves in. Win the abortion doctors to the Lord. They won't have the lust to put babies to death anymore. And what Paul reveals to us is that the greatest weapon that we have against social ills, slavery included, is the grace of God. It's not to say there's not a place to speak up as an informed citizen, but it is to say we ought to recognize as citizens of heaven that our greatest power lies in our ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and win people to the Lord. If you win them to Christ, then God will change their heart and He'll take away from them the desire to do what was wrong. We find in this passage that once Christ had saved uh, Onesimus, and we find that once that Christ had gotten a hold of the heart of Philemon, the issue of slavery, at least in this instance, was addressed. And that the love of Calvary was able to do in a way far superlative to what any manner of legislation could ever provide for was able to address the issue of slavery. So when people say, well, the Bible endorses slavery, they're lying to you. When they say the Bible skirts the issue of slavery, they're being disingenuous. That's not what the Word of God does. If we read the Bible correctly, what we find is that the injunction is this, that if you're a slave, you can't change the fact that you're a slave, but you as a Christian can be the best possible slave, and through that, hope to win your master to the Lord. And if you are a master, then you have a responsibility. It's not your responsibility to eradicate slavery, but it is your responsibility to treat your slaves not as slaves, not as servants, not even as employees, but as a brother or sister in Christ. To elevate them above that system of slavery, to transcend that social system, and to, through Calvary's love, treat them in a way better than their own parents even would have ever treated them. God addresses it, and He addresses it thoroughly and effectively. And those that claim otherwise are being disingenuous. They're not being truthful with you. And a study of the Word of God will bear that out, will show that to be true. So in our text tonight, this little book is busted up, at least for us it is, in three sections. And we studied last week as we made the transition from the book of Colossians to the book of Philemon. Our thought was this, there was a cautious approach in how Paul addressed this issue of Onesimus. Paul evidently feels duty-bound to send Onesimus back to his master in Rome. If you don't know a little bit of the context, I'll share it with you. That It appears as though Philemon is a wealthy man who owns servants, owns slaves. He lives at Colossae. He is a key member in the church, the local church at Colossae. And uh, it would almost appear as though the uh, church was meeting even in his house. And so Philemon uh, has this slave named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away. It appears as he steals something from uh, Philemon, probably whatever money or goods he th thought he needed in order to secure a, a new life for himself in Rome. He steals those things and he runs away. I do not know how the paths of Onesimus and Paul crossed in Rome. 
But somehow, Paul is under house arrest. It could have been through Epaphras. Epaphras, the pastor at Colossae, had come to Rome to seek the help of Paul in combating the influence of the Gnostics and the cults there at Colossae. It could have been Epaphras was wandering down the street, walking about, running an errand, and the grace of God and the providence of God put him and Onesimus in the same place at the same time. could have been Onesimus had stolen something, uh, as was evidently his habit to do, and had found himself in jail, or found himself somehow at the other end of a chain of the Apostle Paul. But in some way, the providence of God puts them in the same room. And Paul begins to, as he did no doubt with anyone he came across, he begins to talk to Onesimus, to inquire of him who he is and what his story is. And he finds out that, in fact, he knows Onesimus' master. He knows Philemon. In fact, he had been the one, very likely at Ephesus, that had won Philemon to the Lord, had led him to Christ. And so, no doubt Onesimus, seeing the hand of God in this, is moved and calls upon Christ to be his Savior, is won to the Lord by the Apostle Paul. And now, Onesimus has a choice. What is he going to do? Is he going to stay in Rome? Is he going to continue on the run from his master? Or is he going to go back and do the right thing and put himself under subjection and the jurisdiction of his master? Paul had preached no cheap salvation to Onesimus. Salvation is free, but it's not a cheap thing. And Onesimus was going to have to, if he wanted to have a good testimony, if he wanted to do the right thing, he was going to have to go back to his master. So Paul decides he's going to broker this reunion. And he takes pen in hand, or he has an amanuensis do it for him, somebody dictate it, that he dictates it to, a penman for him. But someone, uh, himself or someone else, they begin to pen out this letter. And Paul, recognizing the precarious situation that he is walking into, he used a very cautious approach uh, throughout the first seven verses. And we talked about last week how each of these, almost like a general laying siege to a city, Paul sets up all these thoughts in Philemon's mind. It's interesting that it's not until uh, verse number 10 that the name Onesimus is even mentioned. It's, it, for nine verses, Paul approaches Philemon cautiously. And then in the 10th verse, he brings up Onesimus' name. So he's laid this cautious approach. And tonight I want us to consider two thoughts very quickly. First, I want you to notice with me in verses 8 through 19, the comprehensive appeal of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse number 8 with me. Paul says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The term enjoin literally means I, I call to action. I call you to action. I command you. I beseech you. It's almost like the term enlisting someone. And he's saying, listen, I've got a favor to ask of you. But I want you to notice how Paul approaches this. And this is masterful in the way that he... Uh, in the way that he encounters this issue. First, in verse number 8, he states his rights as the apostle. Now, remember, Paul is the man that has won Philemon to the Lord. Philemon would be lost, he would be hopeless, he would be helpless, had it not been for the apostle Paul. Paul is the very reason that Philemon is even a believer. And so, he, in a very tactful way, gently reminds Philemon that he owes a debt to him that Philemon does not have the right to do anything he chooses, that because of Paul's actions, there is a transactional debt that is owed. Now, I told you, I want to sort of, as we walk through this, I want to pick up both the application, uh, very practical, contextual application, but also want to draw this thing in about this type of Christ. We might describe it in this way, that in some ways, Philemon, not in all ways, no type is perfect, but in some ways, Philemon, he reminds us of God the Father. Because Onesimus, reminding us of a sinner, he owes a debt to Philemon. He is Philemon's property. Onesimus doesn't have the right to do anything that he chooses. He owes his life to his master. And Philemon exercises a jurisdictional authority over Onesimus. In fact, under Roman law... When Onesimus returned back, Philemon would have had the right and the authority, if he had wanted to, uh, he could have had uh, Onesimus put to death. He could have had him executed. He could have had him beaten. He could have had him crucified. He could have had him burned at the stake. 
He could have done anything that he chose to do. So Onesimus is in no position really to bargain for himself. Paul, in many ways, he reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, no type is perfect. But I do think there is a point to be brought out here, which is this, that Christ, in dying upon the cross of Calvary, he paid a sin debt that you and I owed to God the Father. And in doing so, I might simply suggest this, if I can say it as respectful as I can. God does not owe us anything, but there is a relationship between the Father and the Son, whereby it behooves both of them to honor one another. And so, in the same way that Christ would certainly never look at his Father and say, I'm going to exercise my right against you, though certainly he, by dint of his relationship to his Father, does have certain privileges. In the same way, Paul, though he, he would not dare necessarily to look at Philemon and say, Philemon, you're going to take Onesimus back, you owe it to me. He does gently remind him that he, as the, the father in the faith to Philemon, does have a certain authority in his life and certain rights in his life. So he states his rights. But he does that not so that he might exert them, but so that he might immediately surrender those rights. Look at verse number 9. He says... Though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin me that which is convenient. I could do this if I wanted to. But he says, that's not the way I want to approach you. Think about this with me. There are basically three lines of appeal that you might make to somebody. You might make an appeal to discipline. And to that they would respond, I have to do this. I have to do that. There are certain things that I don't do because I want to do them. I do them because I have to do I have to obey the law. I have to drive under the speed limit. And I will just go on record as saying that I always do that. I have to do that. Right? Then there's an appeal along the lines of duty. There are certain things that I ought to do. There are things I have to do. There are things that I ought to do. As a father, as a husband, as a pastor, there are things that it is my duty. I am duty bound to do these things, whether I want to do them or not. Now, thankfully, the Lord has made it so that I have a desire to carry out those duties in most of the situations. But even if I didn't have a desire to do it, it's my responsibility to do it. I'm blessed to do something for a living that I love. Most people are not blessed in that way. They go to work because they have obligations in life. And many a person has woke up in the morning and said, I don't want to go to work, but I ought to do it. And they're doing it out of duty. What Paul appeals to, rather, is an appeal along the lines of desire. He says in verse 9, yet for love's sake, for love's sake. I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the age, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He states these rights. Philemon, if I wanted to, I could tell you what to do in this situation. But it's not my desire that my relationship with you or your relationship with Onesimus or his relationship with you be a forced thing. It's not my desire that it be something that goes against our desires and wills, but it's my desire that the grace of God would harmonize all three of these interests in a way that would bring Him glory. Can I just say this, and there's a lot of reasons that I have a problem with the idea of Calvinism. A lot of reasons. The number one being, it's not scriptural. Uh, But one of the chief reasons that I have a problem with it is God goes to great lengths to ensure that man has free will. Great lengths. We all understand free will is a reality, right? We all understand that we can choose to do what we want to do. That doesn't mean we always have a clear way to do those things, but we have the choices in line. But let me also say that one of the reasons that I have a problem with Calvinism is I just have a hard time believing that God desires a relationship with mankind that is not volitional, that is not born out of our love for Him. Why would God go to such great lengths to show us His love for us he did not desire that our relationship with him be based upon our love for him. Paul could have done any number of things, but it was for love's sake. The commentator wrote it down this way. He, he surrenders those rights, number one, in favor of higher grant. I could command you to do this, but instead I want you to do it out of love. He gives him two reasons. First, he says, I want you to do it for love's sake, your love for me. Because I am two things. One, he says, I am Paul the aged. And two, he says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, again, there's a practical application to this, which is simply that there were probably people all over the world, and Philemon was no doubt one of them, that in Paul's older years, as he is infirmed, as he is, uh, his health is, is, is degraded, he has to have doctors care around him 24 hours a day. That's why Luke is his constant companion. 
that desired to do something for Paul. Paul's a man that has seen things, that has done things. He's a man that in his missionary's journeys has won untold thousands to the Lord. And had it not been for his interest and, and passion for the Lord, Philemon wouldn't know the Lord. No doubt Philemon had a great desire to do something for Paul. Philemon, it would appear, as you read through both the book of Colossians and, and the book of Philemon, it would appear that Philemon was a generous man with his money. It would appear that he was a man that provided for and wanted to bless others with what God had blessed him with. And what Paul's saying is this, Philemon, you can't do much for me, but you can do something for me by doing something for Onesimus. And he also mentions, I think, the fact that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ to denote that he has paid a great and high cost to be where he's at, and that what he is suffering for is worth Philemon acting upon. It also reminds me of a couple things in the typology of the matter, which is this. He says, I'm Paul the aged. I've been around for a long time. It reminds me that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is an ageless one. He is the, the word that was in the beginning, that was before the beginning, that when there was no beginning, he was. He is the I am. He is the eternal, always coexistent God. So I, I think the divinity of Christ is spoken to, but not only the divinity, but the ministry of Christ uh, Paul says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm suffering for Christ. And that can't help but bring to our memory the suffering of Christ. I would say this, that the two chief thoughts behind which we are given access and entrance into the throne room of God based upon the mediatorship of Jesus Christ is both his divine nature and the work he did when he walked as man amongst us. You have this beautiful blending of these two natures that you find embodied and exemplified in the ministry of Christ. He was always 100% divine, and throughout his earthly ministry, and even now, he's still 100% man. And in this, you find that this dual, this harmony of these two ideals. I think in many ways it evokes to us and invokes to us the ministry of Christ. What Paul says is, listen, I could command you, but I want you to do it for love's sake. You've heard this before. No doubt, but as Christ hung upon the cross, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It wasn't the Roman soldiers that kept him there. It wasn't the Jews that kept him there. It wasn't even the world that kept him there, but it was love for you and I. It was love that nailed him to the cross. It was love that held him there. It was love that kept him there. The reason he did it was not merely because he was duty-bound, though in many ways he, he was duty-bound to fulfill the will of his Father. It wasn't merely discipline that kept him there, but it was his desire to save you and I. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ went to the cross of Calvary not because He had to, but because He wanted to. And He wanted to not because He desired the suffering and the punishment and the humiliation, but He, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy? Paul would later on speak to churches he had won to Christ, and he would say, You're my joy and my crown. The joy of God is those of us that have been won to Him by Calvary. And what I'm saying is it was for love's sake. That God received you and I, runaways, rebels, uh, you know, disobedient servants, a renegade creation of His back into His presence. Paul, he surrenders his rights in favor of higher ground. Number two, in favor of higher gain. And he basically makes two statements. In verse 10, he reminds uh, Philemon that he himself has gained a new son. He says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. This must have pricked the heart of, uh, of Philemon, because Philemon, too, was a spiritual son of Paul. This made Onesimus and Philemon, spiritually speaking, brothers. Now, of course, they are brothers in Christ, but they're brothers in more ways than that. They're brothers in the sense that the same spiritual father has begotten them. But do you see what it is that Paul is doing? He's reminding Philemon that Onesimus, whether he remains a slave or not, he's more than a slave. He's above a servant. Now, his sonship is the preeminent thing. We find in the Word of God that after we're born again, we are a servant. But our servitude is always subject to our sonship. Our sonship in God always has preeminence above our servitude. You know, the Bible talks about how in the Old Testament that an heir, as long as he was a child, differeth nothing from a servant. But after he has grown, 
the adoption takes place. And the adoption did not necessarily mean legally making someone your son, but what it meant was they came into the full rights of sonship. So a good example of this in the Old Testament, and you find this throughout history, but it's also in the Old Testament, there were times that a king would die on the throne and his only heir would be a young child. And that young child would be king, but there would be someone else that would stand as an advocate for that young child until that child came of age. And that advocate, that mediator, would be the one that would speak on behalf of that child, would advise him, would direct him, and would operate in an official capacity. And Paul says in the Old Testament, that's kind of what the law did for us. It was our mediator. It brought us, it led us to God. It was our schoolmaster. But now in this dispensation of grace, we've entered into the sonship position. And now we've taken upon ourselves the full rights of being a son. And that's what John says when he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. John said this about Christ, that as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. And so what Paul is pointing out, he's going to talk about the servanthood of Onesimus in the next verse. But first he wants to remind Philemon, before he's a servant, now he is a son. And his spiritual position trumps his temporal position. Now you can no longer treat him like you would a servant. You are duty bound to treat him above a servant. And he says, a brother beloved later on. In verse number 11, this is interesting. He says, verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past, he says, was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Two interesting things we might say about this. Uh, In the notes, it says, under the higher gains that Paul points out, I've gained a new son. He says, I've gained a new son. But he also reminds Philemon, you have gained a new slave. The Onesimus I'm sending back to you is not the Onesimus that ran away from you. He's a new person. And Paul uses an interesting play on words here when he says he's profitable. Uh, Onesimus's name really, it literally means profitable. And he's saying, when you sent him to me, he was not what he was named to be. But now when I'm sending him back to you, now his actions correlate with his identity. Now he is what he was named to be. Now he is prophet. Again, what a vivid picture of what God does for us through Christ. Uh, God created us in his image. God intended for mankind to bear the image of God. To be like a mirror reflection of his person. Man, of course, in the garden, he chose to sin and to do wrong. And he spiraled, Adam did, mankind into depravity. And the image of the creator was forever corrupted and tainted by sin. And though now we even still, we bear the vestiges of that identity. I mean, you look at the human body, we are a triune being. Our body is comprised of a head, a, a trunk, and legs. Our, our face is, is comprised, or our hands, rather, are comprised of a thumb and a palm and fingers. Our fingers have three parts to them. Uh, every part of the human body, it seems, is comprised of, of trinities. And in many ways, we still, we bear the vestiges. And now we are the sons of God, but John does mention that it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Mankind was created to be in the image of God through his rebellion, through his unrighteousness, through him stealing the blessings of God that God had blessed him with and running away as a renegade, as as someone that had abandoned the calling that he had been created to. We abandoned that identity. And mankind that was created in the image of God, he doesn't always bear the image of God. Christ fixes that. When he saves us, we come back to the Father. And now coming back to the Father, our identity matches our behavior. We were created to be profitable, but we were unprofitable. But now that we've met Jesus Christ, we come back to our Master, and now we are profitable. Now we're profitable both in name and behavior. I think there's a beautiful picture here, but also I think there's a practical application, which is this. He is reminding Philemon that what you have given up, you have gotten back, and you've gotten more than what you ever gave up. You know, if we will surrender to God the things that belong to us, He'll give us back more than what we ever have given Him. 
He reminds him, you've gotten a new slave. Look at verse number 12. We find that Paul surrenders his rights in favor of higher ground and higher gains, but also in favor of higher goals. Verse number 12, he says, Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is mine own vow. So I'll remind you that the term vows used in the Scripture is used metaphorically, symbolically. Uh, it's used to uh, invoke the idea of our emotions, uh, used to invoke the idea of our passions, of our feelings. And what he's saying is, I'm sending my heart back to you. Will you receive him or won't you receive him? And for Philemon, that was the question. Would he receive him or wouldn't he? All eyes were upon him. How would he treat this trophy of grace being delivered back into his presence and back under the jurisdiction of his authority? It's interesting because for Paul, the question is not of receiving or not receiving. But for him, the question is of retaining or not retaining. Look at verse 13. He says, whom I would have retained with me. He says, if I had my way, I would have kept him with me. That in thy stead, Philemon, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Now, again, a lot of things going on in this verse. Paul's saying, he's such a good servant now, I wish I could keep him with me. If I had my way, I would have never sent him back to you. Again, in the typology of the matter, it's a reminder to us that Christ's desire is to be with us. He said he went to prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may be also. His desire is to be back with us. Uh, The New Testament presents to us the picture of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Him as the head, us as the body. The idea being that there will never be true harmony till we're back together. But I also find it interesting that Paul... He elevates the issue. He elevates it above the political, the societal, or the ethical. He he elevates it to the spiritual realm. And what he is saying essentially is this. Philemon, you owe a debt to me. And I could have just kept it. But I did not want to keep him because, and he'll say this in verse 14, without thy mind would I do nothing that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. What he's saying is this. I wanted to give you, Philemon, an opportunity to respond in the right way. I could have kept him. You know, the commentator pointed this out, and I think this is worthy of noting. There were a thousand ways Paul could have reconciled this situation. There are a thousand ways that he could have done this, and it seems almost as though Paul chose the hardest way. Paul could have found a thousand reasons to never send word back. He could have told Epaphras, Epaphras, listen, you risk wrecking your church if we send Onesimus back. We don't know what he's going to do. We don't know. He might escape between here and Colossae and word's going to get out that we uh, knew him and that he was traveling with you. And how's Philemon, this wealthy member of your church, how's he going to feel when he finds out that you've allowed this to happen? He could have said, it's too dangerous to send him back. Maybe Philemon's going to kill him. I need to keep him here with me. There are a thousand ways he could have addressed this. Or Paul could have simply written a letter to Philemon and said, Listen, under unbelievable circumstances, your runaway slave Onesimus crossed paths with me. I want him to Christ. And he's a good servant now. And I'd love to have him with me. Can I buy him from you? Or would you be willing just to give him to me? In any of these circumstances, no doubt Philemon would have acquiesced. And they could have saved face. They could have kept Philemon from an awkward situation. Paul doesn't address it in any of those ways, though. You know why? Because every one of them benefits everyone except the Lord. Paul chose the one way that would give the most glory to God. You know the one way that this could happen that would bring the most glory to God would be for Onesimus to walk back in with that letter in his hand, proving that the salvation that he had received was not a cheap thing that he had risked life and limb, he had risked well-being, he had risked a future to come back to do the right thing. And for the church to hear of this letter that Paul has written that is obliterating the social system of slavery and is elevating the issue above that and is, is showing, I mean, think about the great ministerial risk that Paul is taking here, putting all of his eggs in the basket of sending Onesimus back. But Paul did it because he believed that when God saves a man, he changes him. Think about the great testimony it would be when Philemon takes that letter and folds it up, puts it in his pocket, and embraces Onesimus, not as a slave, but above a slave, now as a brother. I don't know how it worked out. You don't really know how it worked out. 
We don't know what happens after the close of this little book. I like to believe, and I guess heaven will bear it out, I like to believe that it worked out that way. I like to believe that God got the most glory out of the situation. You see, Paul could have handled this in any number of ways, but his goal was to use this as an opportunity to prove to the church at Colossae that the grace of God changes a man when it saves him. To prove to Philemon and the church at Colossae that Paul had every bit confidence in the world in the gospel and its saving power. To prove to Onesimus that Philemon, that the grace of God could grip his heart and change him and put a love in his heart and life for his runaway slave. Paul said, I'll, tra- I'll go the hard way because the hard way is the way it's going to bring God the most glory. And can we not help but mention Calvary here? Because it was the hard way. It was the hard way, but it's the way that God chose. It's the way that Christ chose because it's the way that brought God the most glory. So we see that he makes this appeal along the line of desire. In a secondary way, he makes an appeal along the lines of duty. And we see a threefold duty here. The duty of Paul is for a legal restoration to take place. Verse 14, he says, But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were necessity, but willingly. Paul says, I was duty bound to send him back to you. I could have kept him. I know you wouldn't have minded if I had kept him. But the right thing to do, Philemon, was to send him back. For Onesimus, the right thing to do is to live the rest of his life repaying the debt that he had incurred when he robbed Philemon, but also the debt that he owed to Paul in reaching him. Verse number 15, he says, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. I have people ask me all the time this question. Why did God allow Adam to sin in the garden? Seems to be one of the great theological questions that people love to pontificate on and ponder on. Why did God allow? God knew Adam was going to sin. We might say it this way. Why did God ever plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Can I answer it in one simple verse? Perhaps, therefore, he, mankind, departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. What we have in Christ is so more, so far superlative to what we had in Adam and to what Adam had in the garden. What we have is so far above what Adam ever experienced. The fact is, mankind did depart from fellowship with his creator, but only for a season. That throughout eternity, not every, not every creature is going to receive the Savior. Not everybody, we're all the creatures of God, we're not all the children of God. And I'm certainly not pointing to any sense of universalism here. But I am saying this, that those of us that accept the Savior, we return back to our Master forever, changed, and in a better station, in a better situation. But also, it's a reminder here that the human debts we incur are not erased by the grace of God, and that the greatest duty that you and I have is to fulfill the roles that we find ourselves in in life in a way that brings God glory in a way that honors the testimony that we have. He departed for a season, Philemon, but now you'll receive him forever. Not just as a servant, he says, but above a servant. Verse 16, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He evokes here the duty of Philemon, and that is a loving relationship with his runaway slave. It's interesting the way that he states it. He states it in the negative in the first part of verse number 16. He says, you'll receive him not as a servant. He's saying, Philemon, you can't expect... If he comes back, what a horrible testimony it's going to be if you beat him, if you scourge him, if you treat him as a slave, as a servant. You can't do that, Philemon. You can't do that. But then he states it in the positive. Don't treat him like a servant. Instead, treat him like a brother beloved. Give him a status and station far above that which he has ever experienced in life. We can't help but think about what John said, that we are now accepted in the beloved. We're given a special status. We're made joint heirs with Christ. And that's what he says in verse 17. Look at it. He says, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. We might say it this way. Philemon, if the covenant that you and I have, if the relationship we have, by virtue of what I've done in reaching you, by virtue of our relationship, if that means anything, then treat Onesimus in the same way that you would treat me. 
What a picture we have of the grace of God. That's exactly what God does for you and I. Because of the relationship between the Father and the Son, we are received as Jesus Christ. That's what justification is. Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is us being set in a right position with God and us being robed in the righteousness of Christ. We are placed in a better position than Adam ever experienced. We're placed in a position not as a servant, but as a son. It's like the prodigal son. He leaves home, he's a son, but he feels like he's a servant. And he's mad about it. So he leaves home, the world beats up on him for a while, and when he actually is a servant, he says, you know what, enough with this servant business here. I'll go back, and when I go back, I don't even want to be a son anymore. I just want to be a servant to my father, because my father's servants have enough to eat and to spare, and I perish with hunger. So he goes back, and he's got it. His whole the whole thing's rehearsed in his mind. I'm going to go back, and I'm just going to blurt it out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me, therefore, as one of thy hired servants. You can see him walking down the road, rehearsing it, saying it 90 different ways. And he gets home, and it's like he's looking. He's not even paying attention. And all of a sudden, man, he just he hears footsteps coming towards him. And about the time he looks up, arms are thrown around him. He's about tackled to the ground. He doesn't even know what's going on. When he finally gathers himself, he realizes it's his father. And he's fell on him, and he's kissing his neck, and he's hugging him. And just as he's about to blurt out that appeal, the father says, Hush, hush. My son that was dead is now alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Go get the robes. Get the ring. Get the shoes. Kill the fatted calf. You know, the prodigal son never even did get to ask to be a servant. You read Luke 15. He was brought back and restored as a son. He was received as though he had never left. And the grace of God makes us not... We do become a servant, but our sonship is preeminent above our servanthood. Our servanthood is born out of our sonship, not vice versa. It says, receive him as myself. He makes one final appeal before his closing statements. Look at verse number 18. He makes an appeal along the line of debt. He says, we find in verse 18 what was owed to Philemon. He says, if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, he says, put that on mine account. Put it on mine account. Again, what a beautiful phrase. How that reminds us of what Calvary was. How that reminds us of who our high priest is and what he does for us. Put that on mine account. All of our unrighteousness was placed upon him, and all of his righteousness was robed upon us. God hath made him to be sin for us, and he knew no sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died in our place that we might be justified. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. The grace of Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet was he made poor, that we might be made rich. Put it on mine account. He reminds Philemon that what was owed to him will be repaid, and has been repaid, and is being repaid. And Paul says, it's interesting because he says in verse 19, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. It's almost like Paul says, now, wait a minute. And he talks to the person pinning it down. He says, bring it over here. I want to write my name right there. Because I want Philemon to understand that I stand good for that debt. Anything that Onesimus owes, it's my debt now, and I'll repay it. Then he reminds him of what Onesimus, or what Philemon owes to him, the end of verse 19. He says, albeit, I do not say to thee, how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. He does an interesting thing here. You, You know how people will say sometimes, I don't want to remind you of such and such. And you're thinking, you don't, huh? Then why did you bring it up? That's what Paul does here. He says, look, Philemon, I don't want to remind you. I'm not going to say it. I want to say it, Philemon, but I'm not going to say it how you owe me even your own self. You can't really do anything. It's like bookends, you know. In verse number 8, he says, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. Verse number 19, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. It's like he's, he's drawn a full circle around Philemon and reminded Philemon, I'm owed some things because of what I've done in our relationship. 
and I am cashing those in on the behalf of my son Onesimus. It's a reminder to you and I that the status and station that we have in the person of Jesus Christ is not a light thing. It's not a cheap thing. It's not a flimsy thing. It's not a precarious thing. Just as Paul drew a circle of, of covenant almost around Philemon and said, I want to remind you there's some things owed here. In the same way, it's like Christ draws a circle around us and says, I have secured by covenant for you your status, your station, your position. What a debt that Jesus Christ paid for us. It's also a reminder to us that we owe a debt too. We owe a debt to him. The same way that Philemon owed a debt to Paul because Paul had won him, had rescued him, had saved him. You and I too, we owe a debt. Because we've been rescued, we've been saved, we've been won, we've been purchased, we've been bought. And how dare us think that we can just walk away without ever feeling any compulsion to repay that debt. Notice these last and closing statements. I'm really not even going to preach it. I'm just going to walk through it. Look at verse number 20. Paul closes with three words. First, he gives a personal word. Verse 20, he says, Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. He says, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. In this, he asks three things of Philemon. First, he asks, provide me relief. It's interesting. He says, rejoice me in the Lord. He says, let me have joy of thee. Let me have some happiness, some joy, some fulfillment, some rejoicing out of your life. It's also fascinating because the word joy is the root word from which we get. It, joy means profit, and it's the, the root word from which we get the name Onesimus. And it's almost like he's saying this, I'm sending something profitable back to you. Onesimus is coming back. He's going to be profitable to you. Now be profitable to me. And let me have some joy out of this situation. Now remember how catastrophically this could have ended. Paul no doubt worried himself to death the moment Onesimus left his presence. It would be weeks, maybe months, before he would ever get word as to what had happened in this situation. It could be Onesimus on the way back would escape, providing a stain upon the testimony of God's grace in his life. It could be on the way back that he would get home and Philemon in rage wouldn't even read the letter, but would have Onesimus put to death. Any number of things could have happened. It could be that he would come back and Onesimus would not act as a Christian and he would not be a profitable servant. could be that he'd get back and Philemon would do right and Onesimus would do right, everybody would do right, but that the church wouldn't receive him. Any number of things could have happened. Paul says, for your part, Philemon, give me some joy and receive him like you'd receive me. He wants him to rejoice him in the Lord, but also to refresh him in the Lord. He says, Philemon, I'm weary. These chains are getting heavy, and I need some encouragement. And you have an opportunity now to provide me a source of encouragement. Can I make this simple observation and move on? I believe that it rejoices the Lord, and I believe it refreshes the Lord. I believe it encourages the Lord. I believe it blesses the Lord when we walk and live and operate in the grace of God. When we are profitable servants to Christ, when we are grace-filled Christians towards one another, when there's harmony in our interactions with other believers, I believe the Lord's pleased with it. He says, provide me some relief. Verse 21, he says, prove me right. Prove me right, Philemon, by simple obedience. He said, I wrote unto thee, having confidence in thy obedience. I didn't write thinking you'd do the wrong thing, Philemon. I wrote thinking you'd do the right thing. You've shown me that you're an obedient believer. Now prove me right, because the world is watching. And then he says, not only through simple obedience, but through superlative obedience. This is a big statement, man. He says, I know you're going to do more than I say. Now stop and think about that. It's easy just to read past it. Stop and think about it for a moment. He has already written and asked. He's already said to Philemon, Philemon, I want you to forgive his debt. I want you to receive him back to yourself. I want you to receive him not as a servant. I want you to receive him as a brother. In fact, Philemon, I don't want you to just receive him as a brother. I want you to receive him as though he were me. 
When he gets in, I don't want people to be groaning or cussing or gossiping. I want him to be cheering and clapping and rejoicing. I don't want him to come back in and have to prove himself, though he knows he has to. I want him to come back in and be received with grace. And then he says, now Philemon, do more than that. The commentator made an interesting observation. What more could Philemon do? Well, the only thing I guess that Philemon could have done more than that would have been to adopt Onesimus as his very own son. To give him not just grace, not just forgiveness, but grace. We talked about it last week. Not just not press charges, but fill up the gas tank, put the keys in the car, and sign the title over. Make him a son, Philemon. Don't make him a servant. Make him a son. Give him the same portion that you would have given your son, Archippus. Make him, make him a son. Man, I don't even know what to say about the grace of God except to say that's what God's done for us. Man, He didn't just pardon us. He made us His child. He gave us all things that there are. He did more than what He would say He would do. Hey, listen, He had to forgive us because of Calvary, if we can say it that way. He had to forgive us. Christ paid the debt on Calvary. That debt was addressed. He had to forgive us. But He didn't have to take us into the family of God. He didn't have to make us His child. Now listen, I can go through all the theological points with you. If you want to, we can talk about why the resurrection of Christ secures us these spiritual blessings in high places and all that. I understand But I'm saying this, God didn't do the bare minimum. He did more. Like like Boaz in the Old Testament with Ruth. He didn't didn't just give her uh, the, the handfuls that would naturally fall. He gave her handfuls of purpose. He told his reapers, leave some extra. And then as their relationship progresses, he loads her down with, with bushels of wheat and of corn and of grain. Boaz did more than what was required. And God did more for you and me than what was required. And I believe, I like to believe, and I believe heaven will bear out that Philemon did more than what was required. So he says, provide me relief and prove me right. Then in verse 22, he says, prepare for me a room. He says, but with all, prepare me also a lodging. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Uh, There's a lot we could say, I suppose, here about... The responsibilities that the church has to the man of God. We can say some things about our own hospitality, how giving we should be in our own lives. But can I just make this simple point? Paul evidently had enough confidence in everybody that he said, you know what? I'm coming back. And when I come back, I expect to find things in order. Paul says our interactions are not done. I'm coming back one day. When I come back... Let me see that the house is in order. Can I remind you that the Lord Jesus is coming back one day? And when He comes back, you know what He ought to find? He ought to find that His house is in order. He ought to find that there's room for Him. He ought to find that the brethren are in harmony one with another. He ought to find that we've received one another, that the grace of God is well spoken of in our church and in our community. He's coming back. What will He find when He gets here? He gives a public word in verses 23 and 24. He gives first off in verse 23 a greeting from a man in prison with him. He says, there salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. This again is why Aristarchus is the one that is escorting Onesimus home and why Archippus is then given a ministry that he has to fulfill. Archippus was Epaphras' son and Epaphras was the pastor at the church at Colossae. And what he's saying is this, Epaphras, he can't come back, he's in prison with me. But you know what? He's watching what you're going to do, Philemon. How would Philemon ever face Epaphras again one day if he had refused Paul's request? He gives a greeting from men that were in partnership with him there. He mentions Marcus, John Mark, Aristarchus, uh, who is going to be carrying this letter, Demas, old Demas, and Luke, who was his constant companion. They didn't know, or I would say that Philemon didn't at this moment, probably didn't know that Demas was going to walk away. But again, Demas's name is mentioned just briefly here. No other details given. Could it be Paul already sensed that Demas had one foot out the door? You and I can look at this backwards, and we can say this, that the question remained at this moment, would Philemon be another Demas, whose wealth 
whose means would lure him down the wrong path. I, I think what he was reminding Philemon of gently is, there's a lot of people watching you, Philemon, and they're watching to see what's going to happen. The final nail in the coffin is verse 25. He says, the grace... If there was any chance that Philemon was going to refuse, Paul says, let me just give one final blow, one final reason. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Philemon, the grace that saved you and me, the grace that rescued you, the grace that kept you from being in Onesimus' position, the grace, Philemon, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul says there's nothing else to say, so he says, Amen. It was left with Philemon now. What would he do with this grace that had been given to him, that had been placed in his life? What would he do as a response to the appeal of Paul? I like to believe that he made the right decision. But I think the greater question is this. What will you and I do as we have opportunity to treat one another with grace? Will we take the grace that has been given and extended and bestowed upon us through Christ? Will we take that and shed that upon the lives of others? Well, we choose not to do the bare minimum, but to do more than what God says. Go above and beyond just the bare requirements of what discipline and duty requires. But out of our desire and love for the Lord Jesus, will we do more? Will we go above? Will we have a superlative obedience?